AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Stan, it looks like you've got a story about some new malware for us. Yes, this is a story about a new malware strain called Notersock or Divergent. Uh, sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. I don't know who to apologize to because there's no standard body for naming malware. <laughs> Uh, but uh, somebody po pointed me at this ThreatPost blog about this malware, uh, and actually uh, two separate research groups uh, were investigating it, Microsoft and Cisco Talos. Uh, they both dived into this malware family. It seems like it's been around since maybe March or so, um, and uh, I, had a, uh, I was actually looking at this malware strain as well, and I found both of the analyses um, quite accurate, uh, quite good reads, uh, but also uh, uh, a little bit different, and I'll, I'll talk about the differences in their analysis uh, as well. So first of all, what is this malware? It's malware like any other, but the unique thing about it is it's considered like fileless. And what does that mean? What do you mean fileless malware? Isn't malware always in a file that you can double click? And so actually, when it starts out, I think yes, most, file, uh, most malware samples are inside of a file. This one in particular comes, um, they think, as an HTA file, which is a type of file that I guess you can cause execution uh, from. So um, uh, when the malware starts up, or when it's kind of like sets itself up, it actually uses the registry to live. So it doesn't live like on the file system per se, it's actually always stored somehow inside of the registry. And then there's something else uh, that loads it from the registry each time. So when it bootstraps, like every, every restart, um, there's another process, which actually I'm not 100% sure what that process is, that takes the malware out and starts executing it. But it uses a lot of PowerShell, which is uh, scripting language in Windows. A lot of legitimate apps use it, um, and a, a lot of malware uses it as well. Um, and the other thing with this PowerShell is that there's a lot of obfuscation and randomization. So if you ever see like weird PowerShell processes, let's say you're looking at a system, you see like weird PowerShell processes and it's got like base 64 in there, which is like a bunch of characters and you're like, what is this doing? It's kind of a red flag. It's a red flag actually, yes. Um, I think that's how both of these groups got smart to this malware. So uh, this malware also tries to disable uh, Windows Defender. It actually reminded me of the last time you and I were on ThreatTrack. I recall. And you were talking about GoodKit malware. Good kit, yeah. Yes, I actually had to go back to that uh, episode and reread the article to see if the techniques in this malware were similar yeah. uh, to the techniques in that malware. Um, and some of them are, but it was actually not the same. I thought it might be like a similar malware strain. Okay, so what's unique about this malware? So when I looked at it, and based on both of the uh, blogs here, um, it looks like it's some sort of like a Trojan that has components or modules. Okay. Its primary function seems to be to kind of stay hidden and undetected. So living in the registry, loading itself up, okay. connecting to some IP addresses to get additional configuration sections. Um, but uh, that's kind of like its primary function. And then what it does is when it connects to those IP addresses, it actually tells it like which modules to download. And some of the modules that it has, which is kind of interesting, is Node.js, which is the legitimate Node.js uh, application. So it uses that as part of some of its functionality. It's got an AV blocking module. And so I was curious to know how that worked. And both of the blog um, entries by Microsoft and Cisco provided the answer, which is, 
it blocks communication to you know, cause like a, every AV has like an update process. Yeah. And so it figures out how to block the communication uh, for AV processes to prevent them from connecting on port 80 or 443. Oh, wow. And so maybe that'll stop like updates from happening um, depending on the, you know, the, how that um, antivirus works. It's modularized. So when it, when it sits on your system and your registry, uh, when it communicates to a C2 or a command and control server, it can actually decide what needs to come down as far as new functionality goes for malware. So not all malware utilizes that, that technique. It's pretty sophisticated. It's, it's complicated, as you can imagine, to include something like modularization in malware, but this one actually does. It has lots of different C2s programmed into it, um, which I believe are most likely compromised. And I think that was echoed in one of the analyses as well. Um, and why, why are you gonna have like dozens or scores of different C2 servers? It's really to prevent takedown. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, it's true that it's helped the adversaries because even as of today, um, we could see that some of the infrastructure is down but some of the infrastructure is still up, and unfortunately there are still victims who are connecting to some of the C2. It's kind of slowly yeah. uh, you know, revealing itself yeah. as each one gets taken down, like another one takes its place. But the one unique thing that I did not know before that I've learned from reading both of these articles is the WinDivert library uh, that's used by the malware. And this WinDivert is actually, um, I guess, a library that lets you play with the, like, the parameters of um, network packets before you send them out on the wire. So like, you know, if you wanted to modify the TCP flags or something in the IP header, generally the operating system doesn't expose that to you, yeah. but it looks like by using this library, you might be able to uh, manipulate that. I think this is also somehow used with that AV blocking functionality. It's clever. Uh, it's very clever and it's a, it's a tool that's uh, very available out there, and it's, a, I guess, an open source project or something like that. Yeah. Um, now, what's different between like the Cisco analysis and the Microsoft analysis, which I thought was interesting. So Microsoft, right, they're, they've got Windows Defender, they're an operating system vendor. They were like, when I was reading their analysis, it seemed to be like more focused on detection mechanisms and figuring out like how to stop this malware, how to detect it's running. Um, things like that. And when I was reading the Cisco analysis, while they both covered similar topics, I felt like they're concentrated more heavily like on the networking aspects okay. of, uh, of how the malware operates. So maybe, fact, maybe one's consumer driven. How do, we, how do we get our people who own our AV products, how do we get them protected? Whereas on the other side of the house, let's, let's understand what this malware is doing. I think they both did that, but one like really focused, I thought, on the networking like Cisco, and you're right. And the other one more on, yes, how to bolster these, uh, like Windows Defender, for example, right. from Microsoft, um, how, to, how to make that better. In fact, I think the researcher who posted for Microsoft was on the Windows Defender team. Oh. Um, and actually, one thing I noticed, I was like, huh, this thing, when I was reversing this malware, I was like, wow, this thing really wants to take care of Windows Defender. Like, it really does not like Windows Defender. It's trying to turn it off <laughs> any which way it can. Yeah. So um, the one interesting thing about WinDivert is that um, Cisco covered um, that the reason they believe this is being used, and I didn't know this before either, is that, let's say when you're visiting advertising websites, they can actually tell what kind of device you are, like an Android or an iOS, based on even the TCP headers that you're sending. So most devices, they can't, they don't, they can't control that. So you can actually fingerprint devices 
based on the type of uh, you know, TCP packets or something in there. And I guess advertisers are doing this now. So like if you're visiting an advertisement and it's supposed to be a mobile ad and they're expecting people who have Android and you come in looking like you're a Windows machine, they actually won't pay for the click, so to speak. They won't count that as a legitimate click because wow. it looks fraudulent. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't realize, I should have realized that um, that's how advanced it's getting. Yeah. Um, but these adversaries, they're clued into that. Um, and what they're doing is they were trying to use this WinDivert library to change the flags to emulate an Android device. So actually they had modules, um, according to the Cisco write-up, that would send like Android-like traffic towards Android-like clicks and iOS-type traffic towards iOS-type clicks. Uh, and that was part of their uh, like strategy for monetizing this. But because of the sophistication of this malware, um, do we know if there's a particular target base? Is it just is it being sprayed out everywhere? How is it being delivered, and who is it being delivered to? I think uh, both articles reference that thousands of PCs are being impacted, and I think it means that this is probably something that's targeting lots of different people. Just by I would say you know most likely some kind of phishing or drive-by downs. I actually, I think it was maybe the Microsoft article that made reference to this initially, is they thought it was based on drive-by downloads from advertising. Um, okay. So when people would visit websites and they would see advertisements, those might be like somehow malicious or hacked and it will cause this HTA file to be downloaded and then ultimately install the malware. That's a very likely scenario. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that just, again, if that is the case, it shows the sophistication of this group because uh, those tactics are also not so easy to implement. Right. So somebody who obviously is wanting to stay hidden yeah. and undetected for long periods of time. Yeah, it sounds like currently it's targeted at, at click fraud. Um, but yeah, this, this was a, a fascinating piece of malware. I, I'm glad you had some time to play with it. I'd like to have it. <laughs> First and foremost, I would say kind of, you know, as always, stay away from shady websites on the Internet. You know, if you, if you perform a Google search and you see a, a, a result that just looks a little bit weird or it's from a domain that you've never heard of, you know, maybe stick with what you know in that regard. AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey Jim, what's the story you have for us today? Yeah, uh, this was an interesting one that I came across this week. You know, over the years on the show, we've talked about a lot of reflective DDoS attacks using various UDP stuff. You know, the first ones were probably the the DNS and the NTP. But, you know, we've also had the SSDP. Well, I happened across an article this week uh, on one using WSD, Web Services Discovery, uh, which is UDP port 3702. And um, this, it's a, it's basically a, SOAP over UDP, so it's got these structured queries that they're doing in UDP packets, and you send a relatively small query, get a large response. Since it's UDP, it can be spoofed, and so uh, this has been turned into another 
reflective DDoS vector. But the, what I thought was interesting about this, this is another case where this particular protocol isn't as widespread as, you know, as some of the other ones we've talked about, as NTP and DNS and SSDP and things like that. Um, but it is found in printers, uh, webcams, uh, online, you know, DVR-type appliances, obviously all things that shouldn't be exposed to the Internet. And the, the one article I was looking at, the ZDNet one, said that they became aware of the uh, – that it was being used for DDoS in the you know, May time frame. So I went and took a look at our data just to see what I could see. And uh, what I discovered is it looks like it may have been discovered back in December of last year. If you take a look at the graph here of the flows. I'm showing 365 days. And you'll see there's you know, a little baseline there. And then there's a spike sometime around Christmas of last year. And then another little spike in January. And then it started ramping up slowly. And then all of a sudden in the last oh, month or so, a whole lot more of that traffic really ramping up since, say, the middle of August, so maybe the last six weeks or so. But I took another look, um, and I, I really believe that somebody discovered that it could be used for amplification probably last December. Because when I looked at the bytes per flow, they, you know, very few until that same same spike in late December of last year, and then since then, you know, there has been a fair amount of these spikes. Surprisingly, while the number of flows has increased greatly in the last six weeks or so, the number of bytes per flow has actually dropped down considerably. I think, I think some of those flows are scanning to see if they can find the um, vulnerable systems. Uh, and so I, I think that we're not, while the number of flows goes way up in the last six weeks and the number of DDoSs I'm sure has increased in the six weeks, I think a fair amount of this may be scanning to find the vulnerable devices and and not just the the DDoSs themselves. I guess the one of the things that it, always whenever I see these UDP used for for distributed denial of service is a what are those devices doing directly connected to the Internet? None of these devices, none of your printers, your webcams, your DVRs, none of those need to be 
directly connected to the internet. And two, what what are the ISPs doing as far as egress filtering so that you know the spoofs traffic isn't allowed to to exit the local networks onto the internet in the first place. I know one of the challenges for some of that egress filtering might be if like the ISP has a lot of um, IP space that the adversary can still um, spoof quite a bit of, uh, of IP address space, but at least they'll be localized. So it's still important to do things like that. Yeah, well, and it, it, it really is incumbent on the you know, on the on the edge nodes, you know, the edge networks to be filtering at their egress because once it's once it's gotten past the edge network, you know, it's it's not something that we can do, uh, you know, as as a big network service provider because we're connecting lots and lots of networks. You know, we have to rely on them to do the filtering when they're exiting their network onto our backbone. But the you know the edge networks, you know the the leaf nodes, if you will, are the ones that really need to need to be watching their their egress and trying to filter that. Because you're right, once once it's onto the ISP's network. They've got so much space and so many different networks that you could still have a lot of significant DDoS traffic just within that one, you know, that one space. Another thing that you said that kind of resonated with me is with that first spike of being around Christmas time of last year, which I think we've seen before, definitely heard before. A lot of this type of DDoS is related to like maybe gaming activity and a lot of people who like to do gaming also go to maybe school uh, and they have a break for Christmas time. Um, and this is where they get to experiment uh, with some of these tactics or some of these new techniques, especially something like this, like it's a new port that maybe somebody's discovered um, and then they try it out and they scan in and they're like, oh, wow, this works. And I think that's what that spike was. I think that spike was the initial discovery and then playing around and seeing how much amplification they could get. And then the, the actual DDoSs didn't start for some months yet after that. Yes, and then building it up and then others adopting it and uh, kind of hearing about it and then using it within their toolkits. And then you kind of see those other bigger spikes where all of a sudden others are scanning for it now um, and uh, maybe trying to utilize the technique. Any devices that you own, printers, security cameras, you know, things that are not computers, um, but ultimately have computers, make sure they're not accessible on the internet. So a lot of the time when you buy a new security camera and you're sending it up on your network, you want to do your due diligence and make sure that if you're sitting outside of your network, you can't talk to it. Um, because if you can talk to it and it's running the service, somebody can actually go in and turn that into a bot. So Andy, I understand you've got a story about a vulnerability in Exim. I do. Exim's in the news again. Not for good things, unfortunately. But this time around, uh, Exim's in the news again for um, potential remote code execution. Ah. 
um, but also denial of service mm -hmm. is the predominant one. So uh, Exim is, is a very popular mail service. It's mail software uh, built for Unix-like systems. So you see it on Linux boxes. You see it on Mac OS. Uh, you can see it on Windows with, with Seguin installed. Um, so a Chinese group, actually, a Chinese team, uh, QAX A-Team, CAX A-Team, QAX A-Team, uh, however you actually pronounce it, uh, they actually discovered the vulnerability. And what it is, is it's a heap-based buffer overflow vulnerability. In the file, there's a, there's a file, in the file that handles the acceptance of the EHLO command, which is the extended hello, um, that, that sort of initiates the SMTP communication. So what you can do is you can send this extraordinarily long string in that packet, and it, uh, it, it causes the whole system to, to shut down, exim to shut down. So there's your, there's your denial of service there. And uh, details, technical details were scant in the article. I wasn't able to dig up any sort of exact details on how it would lead to remote code execution. But the article does state that the team that discovered the vulnerability, they alluded to the fact that it could be used for remote code execution. So that would be, I think, the second RCE remote code execution vulnerability that XM was in the news for uh, as of late, which isn't good. Um, but one of the things uh, that I found interesting about the article was because XM is so widely used, uh, it's, it's free software, so it's going to be used everywhere, um, there's a lot of attack surface there. So if you look on Shodan, you'll find that there's about 5 million internet addressable Exim mail servers sitting out there. So there's a lot of toys to play with if you're a, if you're a bad guy with this sort of thing. Interesting. The double free is, uh, lends itself easily to a, to a denial of service, but it takes a true skilled hacker to make that a remote code execution vulnerability, a reliable one. Right, yeah. Um, so which is, uh, it's probably possible, but it's a lot harder to build that reliable exploit. That's going to be the, the main action. The article does mention that there's no exploit for it now, but the proof of concept is there. So you're right and that it would take a skilled attacker to turn that into a, a remote code execution attack and then enslave all these guys and turn all these guys into, into a nice big botnet. But um, you know, until then, it's going to be a lot of down mail servers. Yes, and it reminds me of actually, I think something we talked about maybe the last time on uh, Threat Track as well, is some malware strain impacting servers where they suspected that an XM vulnerability was in play. Mm -hmm. So this is a, kind of a play on that or something related or something similar. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's still going. This is what, like the third or fourth one this year. They. They had a big patch in July, they had one in June, and I was noticing in the article that of those five million, the vast majority of them were still not patched with the, with the patch from July. So there are an awful lot of vulnerable systems out there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure why, because the, with the advice we always give on the show is patch, 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 and then patch again. Always patch your systems. But you know maybe it's something where you know you don't really think about your mail server as, a, as an attack vector. It's just sort of you set it up and it works and it runs and you're good to go. Your enterprise relies on email moving in and out, so 
it's one of those where you may actually find a lot of companies are a little slow to patch because, you know, they need to find a maintenance window because you don't want to interrupt business and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, yeah, it could be, could be kind of tricky. And that may be why some of them have been slow to patch. But, you know, with another vulnerability here that is, that can be easily exploited for denial of service, you'd hope that they'd get it patched quickly now. Yeah, yeah, that's, that'd be the main takeaway for, for folks out there who have Exim running their mail, is find that, that window and, and get it updated, get it patched. So you want to make sure that you patch your, your Exim systems. There is a patch available. Um, as soon as it was, it was uh, discovered, the researchers responsibly disclosed that to the manufacturer, to, to Exim, uh, and a patch was issued. So you want to make sure you patch your system so that your mail can continue to work. Hey Andy, I have the internet weather for this week. And we'll start with the top 10 most pro ports. Um, basically, this is how we measure um, scanning activity on the internet. Now, this represents uh, scanning activity by volume um, across different ports, and a lot of the activity here is very similar to what we kind of showcase um, every week. Um, but this week, more than any other, I'd like to concentrate on three different ports. So we've got port 445 TCP, which is associated with the uh, SMB and file sharing which was also associated with WannaCry, uh, unfortunately recently, and the Eternal Blue exploit. Um, there was also an uptick in 443 TCP scanning. Now there's always scanning on port 443 TCP, uh, but this week it's, it's gone up um, seven places, so I just wanted to show you what that looks like. Um, and then uh, just revisit some of the activity on port 34567 TCP. It's something that we've talked about in the past, it's obviously a very interesting port because it's all sequential like that, um, but also because I believe there's a, a botnet brewing um, on that port. Interesting. So, looking at the scan probe data on port 443 TCP, which is associated generally with SSL, um, this is looking back 365 days, and now on the top, this is the volume of scanning. So this is, uh, the scale here is billions of records per hour and just how many probes there are or records associated with scanning activity. And on the bottom here, uh, this is the number of IP addresses engaged in scanning and the scale here is in the thousands. But you could see when you line things up uh, this way, you can definitely see that there's an increase in the number of IP addresses doing scanning, specifically like a few spikes uh, I guess that was like a few, was that over a month ago on 443 TCP when there was almost 25,000 IP addresses scanning all per hour at the same time. And then ever since then, it's been kind of like this gradual or much more increased um, scanning against that port. Um, it also differs um, from this pattern here. Um, because those, uh, you know, the ups and downs and the lows and highs and the number of IP addresses scanning um, is quite more, is, is much more significant um, than previously. Uh, what does it mean? Is it a huge botnet? I think it's hard to say that um, right there, but you could, you know, there's thousands of devices doing it. There's probably always some number of devices doing it 
it does seem like there's an increase. It does seem like it's related to some kind of increase of interest in the sport, but it's hard to attribute it to anything specific because it's a sport that's used for so many different things. Um, so uh, we'll just have to keep an eye on it and see if this activity grows significantly or stays about the same. Next thing I wanted to revisit was um, the activity on port 34567 TCP. This is something we've covered before a few times on ThreatTrack. Um, and again, um, this time I decided to look at the scan flow activity and the scan step activity kind of like the same on the same chart. And you could see that the number of devices participating in scanning again is in the thousands. I think last time we met, uh, we were kind of um, in, in this area here. We were able to see scanning activity happening uh, and it was kind of quite high. We were worried about what's going on, but we could see that this time when there was scanning, there were far fewer devices, you know, as compared to the top peak here right. engaged in it, but much more sustained. In fact, uh, for the past few weeks, the activity has been going on kind of nonstop. However, and also unfortunately, if you look at the number of probes total, how much scanning activity there is, that has increased. Even though the number of devices participating has stayed about the same, it seems like the throughput of what they're trying to push out there is about the same. Now, we've looked at this in the past, um, and we've also looked at it geographically in the past. You could see that there are definitely some hot spots uh, for where the devices that are doing the scanning are located. You could see pretty much most of Europe, and then in the Middle East there is lit up. Um, India, Southeast Asia, Brazil, other parts of South America, um, but some other places are not as lit up as, as you might imagine. So, you know, the, for example, there's not as much activity, I would say, in China as we normally see from some botnets of a similar nature. Um, the other thing that we like to do is look at our honeypot, um, and so this is just revisiting. This is something that we've looked at before. And this is how many like events we see, and we could see there's multiple devices coming in every single day, um, attempting to do this uh, kind of scanning. Um, so, what do we see? We actually see what's happening on the sport is that they're trying to log into an administrative interface for DVR webcams, and these are like the different passwords that are attempted to be used. So, um, in an effort to find the malware, I actually. One thing that we did new this week that we didn't do before is we started searching on VirusTotal to see have any samples been uploaded that utilize these passwords uh, or all of these passwords. And so far, I've only been able to find actually legitimate applications that are on VirusTotal um, that seem to be used for managing webcams um, or seeing like a lot of different webcams together. So it's just different legitimate applications. This must be something that they know as a way to connect to certain of the, um, of the, I guess, web DVRs that exist out there. Um, and there was one Mirai-like variant that I found. It only had two of these passwords. And then I started reverse engineering it, but it didn't have the same qualities as this malware did. It worked slightly differently. Um, and it didn't use these passwords in the same way as what we're seeing from the honeypot. It's probably not the same threat. So there's probably still another Mirai-like threat spreading out there, but we haven't found the malware associated with it quite yet. So the other thing I'd like to show you, Andy, is uh, the usual game we play when I'm on the show, which is guess what happened on port 445 TCP 
has the activity scanning activity gone down or stayed the same now just for all of our viewers uh, just to recap where we are um, port 445 TCP is associated generally with WannaCry ransomware and there was a vulnerability that was uh, widely uh, published and talked about uh, sometime in 2017 which culminated in a ransomware being released around I guess this weekend a lot of IT personnel probably look I wouldn't say fondly back on that day but <laughs> definitely reminiscing it uh, because maybe people probably got called in to make sure they were patched the activity went down significantly if we could zoom in on that day you'd see how significantly the activity went down but unfortunately over time scanning activity on the sport has remained high and actually climbed um, and this represents probably the number of devices that are infected uh, with WannaCry or a similar type worm. Um, so what we've been doing this year is kind of tracking the trend of number of devices. Are they coming up or is it increasing the number of devices impacted or is it decreasing? Just to see if we're getting better at um, handling this worm. So it looks like we started in April uh, of this year. So you remember uh, we were going down staying the same going yeah. down going down going down staying the same the last time we were on the show the activity kind of spiked and then went down again so I, we could say it it was the same now what do you think has the activity gone down stayed the same or went up i'm gonna give you a hybrid answer yeah overall well, it's gonna go down uh-huh with the possibility of another spike <laughs> well i think uh if you look at the overall trend, I think you're right. That would be a good guess. Overall, even though things are spiking here or there, things are going down in, in terms of the number of devices scanning on the sport. And uh, looking, uh, I guess, during this month, uh, we could see the activity has gone down, which is very good. Unfortunately, there's still lots of scanning by lots of devices on the sport. So there are many, many devices still impacted, but Slowly but surely, uh, even though this is about three years, so it's very slowly uh, and somewhat surely, um, in general, we're headed in the right direction, which is a downward slope on uh, dealing with these. Now, of course, if you zoom out to all of human history, hopefully there's just a blip of a virus that uh, just went away. So um, now let's transition to the top 10 most sources probing. So this is very similar to the uh, previous top 10 chart but here we're studying scanning activity as it relates to the number of devices scanning on it again every port that's shown here is one we've covered before and some of them we've even touched on this time around um, the one that was interesting to me is um, the, the scanning activity on port 53 UDP by number of sources now UDP is a special protocol in the sense that you can spoof it uh, because it is UDP. Uh, so it's a little bit harder to gauge if it's like scanning activity or backscatter activity or spoofing or some other kind of attack. Uh, but what I decided to do is at least graph out the number of sources that are in, uh, you know, scanning on port 53 UDP. And when you look at it this way, and you look at where we are today, uh, this is I think 90 days, you could see that even though there are some spikes, uh, and maybe the amount of activity is more than maybe it was exactly a week ago, overall, um, the activity is kind of stable. So there's not 
a huge increase in the number of devices doing the scanning. And because it's a port, it's a little bit hard to attribute um, of what might be going on there. Um, I think we can't make a concrete conclusion, unfortunately. But I decided to look at it anyway since it came up in the top 10. Unfortunately, can't make any conclusions with it. We can't explain the reason behind it uh, because there's just so much different scanning activity that happens against 4443 TCP. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.